Well, we want to consider missions today and what God is doing around the world, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9, and I'm going to read that scripture to you, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. This is what God says. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Let us pray and ask God to bless his word. Father, we have now read what you have to say in your scriptures, and we do believe that when we study your word in worship, it's a little different than just studying in a Bible study. We really come in worship to hear you speak to us. And so we would ask that you would speak through your Holy Spirit to each of us individually. After all, he is the one that wrote these words anyhow through the pen of Matthew. So we come now believing that you are going to bless us and that we, were, we are going to leave here with your words on our hearts. We pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are a number of things you can see in this text, and one thing you can definitely see is that there's a pattern to Jesus' ministry. If you'll notice in the first verse, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. It says he teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, and healing every disease and every affliction. He went preaching, he went teaching, and he went healing. And one thing that does show to us is that when Jesus brought the Word, and he was the Word, when he brought the word to people, he met them where they were. If they needed healing, he healed them. If they needed food, he fed them. Of course, they needed to meet him, and so he embraced them. And that's important because we find that that's the way you always have to approach people. Uh, if you want to witness to your neighbor next door... Um, you could go next door, ring the doorbell, and when they come to the door, grab them by the lapel and jerk them forward and tell them, do you realize that you are lost and in danger of spending eternity separated from God in hell? Hey, but I've got some good news for you. And uh, that is that God has made a way for you to connect with Him. He sent His Son. Now, how many of you think that would work? Actually, it could work, and I'll tell you why. God's a sovereign God. He can do anything and he can use anything. But it's not good evangelism. You would not find that method in a book on how to win people to Christ. I guarantee you that. Maybe you should get to know the neighbor first, right? Uh, maybe you could invite them over for barbecue, you know, next door. Or if they have kids and you've got kids, you maybe could cut a hole in the fence and shove your kids through and, uh, and make a contact that way. My point is, you've got to somehow bring the gospel to people, but you've got to bring the gospel to people where they are. Now, why even emphasize this, other than the fact that it's in the text? Well, when I went to Mission of the World 22 years ago, they actually bragged about the fact they didn't do anything but preach the word. They called themselves word missionaries. Now, I want to tell you, they're missionaries all over the world were doing other things, but that's what they would say. We are word missionaries. We don't do any of that deed stuff. Now, why would they say that? Well, back in the 50s, back in the 60s, 
uh, there was a heresy around. It was called the social gospel. And the go- social gospel was very simple. You don't need to tell people about their lostness, about who God is, about what Jesus did for them. You don't need to tell them that. All you need to do is give them a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. Now, some of you know that's actually a verse in the Bible, but horribly taken out of context. And so those of us who believe the Bible is the Word of God and believe that people need to hear the message, we rejected any kind of reaching out to people with a cup of cold water. You know, that's called throwing out the baby with the bathwater when you're trying to deal with a heresy. Jesus did that. Your missionaries do it. And we need to do it. I can tell you, I noticed you have a mission work in Bulgaria. Right now, I happen to know they're praying for a ministry they have, which is a sports ministry related to lacrosse. I can't imagine them playing lacrosse in Bulgaria, but that's what they're doing. Or I can tell you that uh, for a while I worked in a mission in Vanuatu. Maybe some of you have never even heard of Vanuatu. Um, Actually, when I went to get the global entry, I was one of the first people in the United States to get global entry, and they didn't really know what they were doing yet. So after you filled out all your things and sent it in, then you had to go for an interview. So I went down the Atlanta airport out to uh, econ course, you know, where they've got the uh, border guards and all that kind of stuff. And a young lady came out with a Glock on her hip, and she said, you know what? We don't know what to ask yet. They haven't told us. So I'm just going to ask you one question. So you had, to, you had to write down every place you'd been for five years. My list was long. And she said, is there a place called Vanuatu? And I said, there is. And hey, they let me in. I, I got the, I got the uh, global entry uh, thing for that. But uh, in, Glo- in, in Vanuatu, there are lots and lots of Christians. You know, that, that's where John Patton worked originally among uh, cannibals for 30 years. And, and because he was a Scot, everybody became a Presbyterian. 40% of the people in Vanuatu are Presbyterians. When they got their independence from the French, their first Congress was actually the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of Vanuatu. What they needed was a seminary. Uh, They were sending their students to to Fiji, and it was an extremely liberal seminary, and they were coming back. Their faith was shaken. Some of them didn't believe anything anymore. Uh, It was a terrible situation. So we helped them to build a seminary of their own. You know, there's all kinds of things you need to do when you bring the gospel to people. That's my point. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus looked at the situation, and he ministered to people where they were, and that's what you'll find missionaries doing all over. Secondly, you see something of the heart of God, I believe, in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I've never seen a sheep without a shepherd, I'll tell you that, because there are sheep around here, but they're just an offense. And I've been to the Holy Land, and I've seen sheep there, but they all stay very close to the shepherd, let me tell you. A shepherd doesn't have to look behind to see if the sheep are coming because the sheep just follow like puppies. I think they know intuitively you get too far away from that fella, you're going to be in trouble, you know. The, the elements could get you or... Another animal could get you, so they stay close. 
What Jesus is trying to say is people without a shepherd, people without him, are in danger. They're in danger of perishing. And what I like about this is it's obvious that lostness bothered Jesus. You notice that? In fact, I like to translate this verse because compassion, you know, in, in the English, compassion's a good word, but it also doesn't have a lot of oomph. I would rather say when Jesus saw people that didn't know him, he was brokenhearted. It deeply impacted Jesus. Now here's the question. Does lostness bother us? You see, you'll never really get deeply involved in missions if lostness doesn't bother you like it bothers Jesus. I think I have an example of what this really looks like, this sheep without a shepherd. When my children uh, were growing up, my youngest child, she, she thought God had put her on this earth to rescue all stray animals. And, and she took that job really seriously, I can tell you, because uh, she would get so upset when she saw animals that looked lost to her that we trained her. If a dog has a collar on it, it doesn't, care, it doesn't matter where that dog is, it is not lost. So if we were going down the highway and we saw a dog over here without a collar, we'd say, Sydney, look over here. <laughs> because we, I couldn't stand the wailing in the back seat, you know. Turn around, turn around, turn around. Well, children, and some of you know this, the problem with children is they grow up. And when they grow up, they get a driver's license. And when they get a driver's license, they can rescue their own dogs. And so right after she got her driver's license, in a three-month period, she brought home eight dogs. And they were not good dogs, I can tell you. They chewed up things, and they messed up things they shouldn't have chewed up, and they shouldn't have messed up, so I passed a new rule in the, in the household. You know what it was? Thou shall not bring home any more dogs. You got it? Well, went off preaching one weekend by now these adult teenagers could stay home they didn't they didn't want to go with their parents you know how that is they want to go to church uh, with their friends and so we'd leave them at home and we'd go off and we were on our way back it was before cell phones and so we stopped in a rest area to call the kids and tell them we'll be home in one hour now you know why you do that um, <laughs> and uh, we came down the driveway, and these three adult teenagers, they just boiled out of the house, you know, like bees out of a hive. They'd been stuck by a stick, and, and I was trying to figure out what the deal was. They were hugging on us, and they were kissing on us, and they were telling us we were the greatest parents they ever lived, and, and the house looked all right. And then it dawned on me, and I said, I'll tell you what, it better not be a dog well, the oldest daughter went to crying, so I knew it was a dog. <laughs> and Paul Jr. goes to the basement, and he calls down into the basement, Hey, Murphy, come on up and meet Dad. <laughs> you see that? They'd, 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 uh, they'd already named this beast. And uh, up the stairs lumbered this large, have you, ever, have you ever seen a red golden retriever? They have them. This was a red golden retriever, big dog. Pitiful dog, stomach all shrunk up, uh, and uh, hair all matted down, 
and 75 great big fat ticks all over her. Well, I rushed her to the vet, and you know what the vet said? If you hadn't gotten Murphy here today, I don't think she'd have made it through the night. She was a sheep without a shepherd. She was perishing. Now, if you saw people up driving up and down this street right here, and they just looked fine, they had everything put together, they had a fancy car, fancy clothes, fancy watch, whatever, but if you knew for sure that they did not know Jesus Christ personally as their Savior, would you see people whose hair was all matted down, their stomachs were all shrunk up, and they have 75 great big fat ticks all over them? That's what you ought to see. Those people that don't know Jesus, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're like Murphy. They're perishing. And it broke Jesus' heart. And it ought to break our hearts. It really should. Don't worry about Murphy, by the way. She became my dog, so don't worry about that. <laughs> but then the text goes on to tell us there are two problems. In verse 37, he says, The harvest is plentiful, that's one problem, but the labors are few. Now, first, the harvest is plentiful. What does that mean? Well, if you look over in um, John's gospel, in the fourth chapter, right after Jesus is dealing with the woman at the well, who says, listen, I've just met a man that can tell me everything that's ever happened to me. You've got to come out and see him. And the, the, the disciples are quite uh, baffled by this whole thing and concerned about it. And so in, in um, verse 31, chapter 4 of John, it says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about, so the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. What that text helps us to realize is what Jesus is saying over here in the text we're looking at now He's not saying there's so much out there that if you got your combines working and you brought it all back in, you wouldn't have sheds and, what, bins and silos, you know, and all those kinds of things. You wouldn't have enough to hold it all. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is that the harvest is ripe. And do you notice there's a difference between a lot and ripe, isn't there? Ripe means you better get busy because what happens to ripe fruit of any kind? It perishes too. It rots. In other words, there's an urgency to the business of missions. There really is. There's an urgency to the mission. Now, you know, we're Presbyterians. We realize that God saves whom he wills. We believe that. I believe that. The Bible teaches that. The Bible also teaches there's an urgency to the business of missions, and we are the ones that need to get busy. It says so right here in this text. I don't put those two together. I let God worry about that. All I want to emphasize now is what's in the text. 
Jesus is saying, the harvest is ripe. It's white. And you've got to get busy. You've got to take this seriously. You've got to commit yourself to it. Now, I know that this is a church that has a lot of commitment to missions. I was able to read your little booklet or your uh, little magazine on missions. I know a lot of those missionaries. And I've been to Bulgaria, and I've been to Haiti, and I uh, actually got a call while I was waiting right down there in, that, in the aisle, a call from somebody related to, to Ukraine. Um, and uh, there, you know, everywhere you look, there's just so much to do, and there's so many opportunities, and so many people coming to, to Christ. You know, you maybe have heard this uh, myth, and that is that Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. Have you ever heard that? Some people say that. Now, there is a little bit of truth to that. That's like saying the PCA is the fastest growing denomination in the United States. We said that for 10 years. By the way, we don't say that right now. But we said that for 10 years. And we were, if you take per capita. But, but the Southern Baptists had a whole lot more people joining the Southern Baptist churches every year than we had. It's just that they are 15 times larger than we are. So per capita, we were growing at a faster rate. Christianity is three times larger than Islam, and so right now they have a per capita growth that's larger than ours, but not a numerical growth. That's very important. And most of their growth, by the way, is by birth, not by conversion at all. And I'll tell you another thing. More people are going to become Christians out of Islam in the next 20 years than any time in history. I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't equal all of those that have come to faith out of Islam in, in the past period, let alone the last 20 years. All this migration, uh, those are people that their roots are being ripped up, and many of them are going to be responsive to the gospel. They already are. Or I can tell you there's quite a revival going on in Iran right now. Uh, people... people uh, the the, uh, the mullahs, uh, you know, tell them America's a terrible place. So they get American flags and sew jackets out of them because they don't like the mullahs. And so they think America must be okay. And then they tell them Christianity is terrible. And they don't like the mullahs. And so they start coming to churches and so on. There is a revival going on there. And uh, wherever there's been upheaval of people, God has used that as far as I can see. You know, if you go to um, Korea, for instance, uh, largest Presbyterian church in the world in Seoul, Korea. But why are there so many Christians in South Korea? Because of the Korean War and all those people that came as refugees from the north. Uh, and and their roots had been ripped up and, and, and they were open to the gospel. So, now is the time. Now is the time. The harvest is ripe. But then, it says, but the labors are few. And I'm going to just talk about one thing because this is faith promise day. Uh, but notice it says the labors. It doesn't say we have too little money. It says we have too few laborers. And that's the same. It, 2,000 years ago plus, it was not enough people. And, and it's still not enough people. You see, there's plenty of money. 
we just need more people that'll give it. That's that's the truth. And uh, as you think about your faith promise, I want you to think about that. God really is inviting you to be involved in missions through your giving. It's one of the greatest privileges you'll ever have. You know, I I can remember the the first time uh, our church uh, went to a faith promise and the preacher really was excited about it and he encouraged everybody to get involved and my wife and I, we took it seriously, and, and so we prayed about it, and we decided we would give the same amount to the faith promise. We'd never had that before. We'd give the same amount to the faith promise we'd given to the church the year before. Now, that may sound kind of magnanimous, but after all, Koistra is a Dutch name. You know, you've heard that Scott people are, you know, they're Scottish. They're, they're cheap. Um, they learned it from the Dutch, let me tell you. And, and uh, so uh, I, I got a calculator out, and I figured this out, and we had just about that much money left over last year. This is going to work out fine, just fine. And then about a month into that faith promise year, we had an $8,000 reduction in income. Now, I want to tell you, we weren't giving anything like $8,000 to the church. Uh, that was a long time ago, and that was a lot of money. And I told my wife, I said, we're just going to have to forget that faith promise business because we're going to be fortunate to be able to give the same amount to the church, let alone to the faith promise part of the offering. My wife, and, and you know, you men know this, often your wives have more faith than you have. And uh, so she said, well, you know what? We made that. We prayed about it. We made that promise. I'll write out one twelfth of that amount every month until we run out. Let's see what happens. Guess what happened? We didn't run out. We didn't run out at all. And I just figure, you know, I, I did, we didn't have to have any major dental work. Uh, we, uh, the tires worked in the car. We didn't have to replace. I don't know. It worked. And that really got us involved in faith promise. And it became one of the most exciting things we did because I believe that the blessing of faith promises, it stretches your giving. It really is a challenge. You know, sometimes when we pass the plate in, in, on Sunday, it, it, it just doesn't seem like an, a, a serious part of worship when it is, but it doesn't feel that way. But this faith promise really stretches your giving. Some years later, we had a man come to our church to preach on faith promise, and, and uh, he, when, when it got time to fill out the card, he said, now, you got cards already. Uh, you're, they're going to pass out the cards to you at the end of the service here, but we'd already had the cards. And he said, many of you have put a number down there already. I believe God's been speaking to some of you, and uh, you, should, uh, you should think about crossing through that and putting down a different number, a bigger number. So I looked at my wife, and I said, what do you think? And she said, yeah, I think so. And uh, so I said, okay, well, what are you thinking about? And she wrote a number down, and it wasn't a number I was thinking about. (laughs) But um, you you don't want to look cheap in front of your wife. So I I said, okay, okay. (laughs) Well, it was a great year. Really, it was a great year. It's a blessing to be involved in missions like this. And so the next year, guess what? We invited another preacher to come. It happened to be me. I was preaching, you know, in, in the home church. And I remembered what that guy had done the year before. And I thought, I can do that. 
So I did. I challenged everybody to cross through the number they had and stick down a bigger number. I forgot, though, that my wife was sitting out there, and <laughs> now she was out there by herself. I knew this wasn't going to be good the minute it came out of my mouth, you know. And so afterwards, I said, okay, what did you stick down? And I knew it was going to be a large number. And guess what? It was another great year. Another great year. And uh, I, some of you know my first wife passed away, and I'm remarried, and we continue that practice. In fact, uh, when I married my uh, present wife, you know, I, I, I said to her, um, you know, we don't, we don't go very much for that tithing business. That, that, I don't really think that's where God wants you to, to, to set the, the ceiling. Uh, and she said, I agree with that entirely. She said, uh, how much are you giving? And I told her, and she was surprised. I said, you know what? It hasn't hurt because we just added a little bit every year, every year, every year, and it never got close to running out. And I just believe that it was part of God's grace working in our lives to make us givers. You see, the gift of giving is hard to get. No question about it. There are a lot of gifts, but the gift of giving is hard to get. And by the way, that is a gift. You'll notice when you read Romans 12, you'll see it there as a gift. So I want to encourage you with this faith promise to think about that. Can you stretch it just a little bit this year? Not because God needs it. Not even because your mission program needs it. Because you need it. It will bless you. It'll bless you. It'll bless your children as you teach them about stewardship. About the fact that what we have doesn't belong to us in the first place. Someone said years ago, it's not how much of our money we give to God, but how much of God's money we keep for ourselves. That's the real issue. That's the real question. So as you think about this, think about it. Last year the goal was, uh, you don't have goals. Last year the, the sum was two, 266000 By the way, I will tell you, still they're short, you're short 60 of that 266 for this year. And I know some of you are finishing that up. But even as you think about that, think about this coming year. Now, finally, it tells us what the answer is. And the answer, you'll notice, is not the preacher shall lay a guilt trip on you. Verse 38. And I probably just did. And I don't apologize for it because I don't know what else to do. But, but notice, that's not the answer, is it? The answer is pray. And I would encourage you to pray about what you're going to give. That's what we did every year. And that's how it worked. That's how it grew and grew and grew. And uh, we've got a very interesting situation. Up until uh, November 1st, I, I had a job. And, uh, and, and I was the president of a college and a seminary. I don't have that job anymore. So my wife and I, we sat down and talked about it. And we said, okay, what's that mean? And you know what we decided? We'd give the same this year as we gave last year and just a tiny bit more and see what happens. If we run out, uh, that's okay. God doesn't get after you, you know. 
he doesn't dun you. Um, he wants to bless you. But I tell you what I think. I really do. I think it's going to work out just great. Uh, maybe I'll come back and tell you about it. But all of you have an opportunity to pray about this. It says, pray the Lord of the harvest. Pray the Lord of the harvest about your faith promise and take it very seriously for your sake because you'll be involved in missions. Let me pray. Father in heaven, uh, we have seen the pattern of Jesus. Um, and he reached out to us, all of us in different ways. Many of us have come to faith in different ways. Some of us as children, some of us as adults. But there was a point at which the gospel made sense to us because of where we were and what was happening to us right at that time. And we know that that was a work of your Holy Spirit. We've seen the heart of Jesus. And we would pray that you would give us the same heart, that, 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 that lostness would bother us like it bothered Jesus. It would break our hearts like it broke his. And then we pray that you will lead us and guide us. That what we do in relationship to our faith promise pledge that it would be your will for our lives and nobody else's. We pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.